According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, we're in verses 12 through 16, although 12 through 16 really is so dependent on uh, 7 through 11 that we'll probably, undoubtedly, we're going to be bouncing back to con- to uh, reference the previous paragraph to have the right context for this paragraph, because this paragraph begins with a not that, not that or not that. There's two not that's that uh, he's contrasting. Paul doesn't want the Philippians to, to misunderstand what he's saying in verses 7 through 11, talking about pressing on, and so that's what we're going to deal with here this morning. Before we do begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to, to hedge us about, to protect us, to set aside our distractions, and to lead us in truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for your faithfulness, rejoicing, Father, in uh, the blessings that you pour forth upon us day by day and moment by moment. Father, this is a day that uh, that none of us were guaranteed or promised in any way, and yet by your grace, here we are. You, know, you uh, chose for us to wake up today and get out of bed and come to church, and this is uh, a grace provision. And so we uh, acknowledge your faithfulness, we acknowledge your uh, grace that we don't deserve, and we thank you for it. And we call upon your faithfulness now to open the eyes of our understanding and to teach us. Because, Father, even comprehension is uh, his grace. Father, we couldn't understand your word if it wasn't for your grace. So thank you for being faithful, Father. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, this is the paragraph that we've titled Pressing on the Upward Way. And uh, it centers on this. I don't think I'll show this too many more times, but... The uh, main address, really the bulk of Philippians, starts here. Everything before chapter 3 was was introduction, it was background, it was ready. The primary message for the book of Philippians starts here, and it's 3-1 through, uh, through 4-8, uh, I guess, would be the bulk there. Um, anyway, we're now in this section here, we have the profit and loss statement in uh, verses 7 through 11, which leads us to the pressing on the upward way statement of verses 12 through 16. The humble attitude that was reflected in Paul's statement there in verses 7 through 11, the humble attitude that takes all of your prophets and writes them off. That takes some severe humility at that point. And to be able to take all those prophets and write them off as a loss is a humble attitude, and it's the humble attitude we should all have, and it equips us to keep pressing on the upward way, verses 12 through 16. Once we complete this paragraph, we'll wrap up the chapter uh, in verses 17 through 21. The chapter concludes with a warning against those who are earthly-minded and fail to esteem our heavenly citizenship. And that is a serious warning because many of those enemies of the cross of Christ are right there in the local church, side by side with the other believers in the local church. And yet uh, their attention is focused earthly instead of a heavenly, and, uh, and it becomes an issue. And so uh, we'll be dealing with that uh, in the blunt terms that Paul puts it to when he says, I tell you now, even weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And uh, 
Sometimes we struggle. Sometimes we struggle to identify the enemies for who they are because we like them, because we're friends, because uh, we, th- we just think, well, you know, they'll get it sorted out at a certain point. Well, maybe they will, if God permits. But we pray for that, we work for that, and we don't tolerate the, the false worship. So that's going to be something we'll, uh, we'll deal with. For now, though, we're still pressing on the upward way here in verses 12 through 16. All right. And so in this, when he says, not that I have already obtained it, or not that I have already become perfect, there's two things that he's disclaiming. This uh, passage is going to begin with uh, what we call a negative affirmation. And uh, he actually makes two of them. They're, they're twin statements. He has not as of yet achieved the objectives of verses 9 and 10. He has not yet as of yet prepared for the rapture of the church as per verse 11. And so these things uh, we want to make sure we're solid on before we advance. So he makes these statements in 9 and 10 and 11, and then in verse 12 he says, I'm not there yet. All right, don't, don't think that's what I'm saying. Don't misunderstand me. Not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but I keep pressing on. And that's the issue there. So for context, remind yourself, what are we dealing with here in verses 9 and 10? We're talking about gaining Christ. And really, it's the last expression from verse 8, that I may gain Christ, see? And this is, uh, this is key. And I hope, uh, and, I, and from the conversations I've been having, folks have really been appreciating this and seeing this for what it's saying. We receive Christ when we get saved. But that's a different thing than gaining Christ, right? Gaining Christ is, is a victory. Gaining Christ is a mark of maturity. Gaining Christ is defined in this passage as knowing Him fully, that I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, that I might be found in Him, that I might know Him, in verse 10, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. These are the the transformations that take place in our victory, the transformations that take place in our maturity as we grow. And uh, you know, when people look at you, are they do they see you or do they see Christ? Because you you are to be found in Him, discovered, found, observed, and uh, the issues there, and uh, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. This is to be rapture ready. This is to be absolutely ready to, to, to hear that trumpet and to be caught up into the clouds and uh, to ascend. And, you know, the Lord himself descends with a shout. We also want to ascend with a shout, <laughs> right? And that shout needs to be one of joy, one of uh, uh, positive anticipation. It's not to be one of dread. See, and I think it's very clear. There's a, a verse in, in 1 John 2 that talks about shrinking away from him in shame at his appearing. And none of us, we don't want to be that. I don't want my flock to be in the position where, you know, you weren't equipped and, and you weren't ready, see. Because when that trumpet sounds and a twinkling of an eye, we are, we're caught up. We are snatched and we are there. And so the whole thing is to be rapture ready. And that's what the impact is on verse 11. Uh, possibly the most obscure of all the rapture passages anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, so much so that it's not often thought of as a rapture passage. Um, in any event, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. 
And this is not talking about the resurrection at the end of the age or a general resurrection, which everybody experiences a general resurrection. Uh, No, this is specifically something Paul hopes that he can attain to, that he might live long enough, as we do as well. I hope that we are the rapture generation. I want to live long enough to see the rapture generation, which will ideally be today, sometime today before the sun goes down, see. And that's the the day-by-day expectation of glory, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So, if you're not there yet, if you've not yet been perfected, if you've not yet finished your course, if you've not yet, uh, if you're not yet rapture ready, then today is another day to keep reaching forward. Today is another day to just keep getting ready and uh, to enjoy that process. So he says, not that I already took, not that I already lombanoed, and uh, the it is not there, This is part of what we were looking at Wednesday night. Um, Not that I have already taken. Not that I've already gotten. And uh, the verb lambano is the only place it's used in this paragraph. It's going to get intensified shortly. We're going to have some kata lambanos coming up. But it's only used the first time here and simply, and then it's compounded for the rest of the paragraph. And I think that's not accidental. We'll talk about why it gets compounded. But he starts off with the basic lambano. Not that I've already got it. All right, gotten. And the idea of taking or getting, it's a pretty ubiquitous term. It's used almost as loosely in Greek as it is in English. We talk about things that we can get, things that we get mentally, things that we get when we learn something or we apprehend something, or things that we get if we think, uh, if we think we got a handle on things. We say, okay, I got this, right? And, uh, you know, so you stop to wonder, you know, uh, which of these idiomatic uses did Paul have in mind as he was talking about, not that I've got this. Okay? Not that I've got this. And then maybe we should kind of use it with that tone of voice and use it with that idiom or that understanding, see, that in the process of our walk, who's got this after all? Do we got this or does God got this? Okay? The Lord's got this. Okay? He's the one that's in charge of this in any event. Not that I've already gotten this or have already become perfect. And he uses those phrases in parallel. He uses those phrases in parallel. So um, when we just start off with the verb lombano, to have, to take, to get, there is no it. When you notice in your English Bible, the word it is italicized. That means it's not in the Greek. It's, it's simply implied. It's, it's a way that the translators are trying to find an object for the verb take or the verb get. Not that I've already taken or have already become perfect. Not that I've already been perfected. Now this is a perfect passive of teleao. Teleao is to be completed, to have the missing pieces of the puzzle put in place, to have the deficiencies remedied, to, uh, to be made perfect. All right? And depending on the, the object and the context and whatever else you're doing with it, there can be a, a variety of expressions there. But the fact that he's using them in tandem... He's saying, not that I've already or already is equating these two things. And so we want to equate these two things and recognize that laying hold of, of, uh, of, of glory is the same as laying hold of perfection. And uh, until we're there, until he's prepared us to do this, then we're still getting ready. We're still being prepared. So since the parallel expressions equate to one another, being perfected equals gaining Christ. And again, the definition, going back to the previous paragraph, gaining Christ means being found in Him, rapture ready. Being found in Him, rapture ready. 
And then ultimately, you know, nobody can claim they're there yet until they're there, right? You can't claim you're perfected until you're perfected, until you're face-to-face with Jesus Christ. So um, that's why we say it's a process, and we would disclaim being there. Being perfected equals gaining Christ, found in Him, rapture-ready, and then to realize that means we're face-to-face with Jesus Christ. You know, that's what you have in heaven. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 23. The spirits of saints made perfect. And uh, what a joy. So, um, this is what we're looking at here. Now, he says, but I press on. But I press on. I pursue. I uh, chase after. It's always a pursuit. Dioko is the verb. And interestingly enough, dioko is, is usually a very bad word. Usually dioko means persecute. Typically the bulk of your dioko uh, translations are persecute. And it's uh, the minority of the uses that are not negative. It's the minority of uses that are described in, in, uh, in positive terms. Um, but the verb is dioko, D-I-O-K-O. And I don't know how to help you remember that. When I was first learning Greek, I, every time I heard dioko, I heard yoko ono. And I thought, well, how does that work? How am I going to remember yoko ono and persecution, right? Well, have you ever heard her sing? All right, so that sticks with you. And you think, okay, dioko is persecute. I got that. And so 45 uses in the New Testament and all throughout the Gospels, uh, if if uh, there's persecution that's happening, and this is the verb you're going to encounter related to persecution. Number 1377 is the Strong's number. But even in this chapter, there was a use of it up in verse 6 when Paul was talking about his credentials and everything that was great in, in, in Jewish life. Uh, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And that's the very same verb we're looking at here to pursue, but there, obviously, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, is uh, that's dioko, that's the verb dioko. And uh, in its natural sense, the idea is to chase after, okay? And we have similar idioms, I guess, if, if um, you know, you feel like somebody's hounding you, you know, you have a supervisor and he's chasing you, he's hounding you, he's persecuting you, well, why is he always... You know, why is he always writing me all the time? Why doesn't he just go pick on another coworker instead of me kind of a thing? Well, that pursuit, that hounding, that chasing, that's, that's persecution, okay, in, the, in the, the sense of it there. Um, otherwise, though, when it's not used in a negative way, it can be very positive to chase after. There's things we're told to chase. We're told to run with endurance, the race that's set before us. And so there are things we should be chasing, in which case the verb pursue is, uh, is a positive way to render it, uh, not only here, but also in Romans and 1 Corinthians where we're pursuing uh, peace, we're pursuing the things that make for the building up of one another, we're pursuing uh, sanctification. There's, there's many things that we're told to pursue. And even this pressing on we could think of as a pursuit uh, in, in the sense that I'm, I'm continuing my pursuit, I'm continuing my race. And, uh, and I'm pressing on. What we don't want to do is just let up on the gas and coast. What we don't want to do is just kind of coast and relax and drift and, uh, and feel like, well, you know, we'll, we'll get there eventually, okay? No, uh, we could be there today 
And that's the sense of urgency. So uh, it's like running a race and you don't know where the finish line is. <laughs> so how fast do you want to keep running? Because uh, what if, uh, you know, what if you're just running and you think the finish line is 40 years from now? You think, yeah, I've got 40 years left. I'm going to be around a while. I can, you know. And then all of a sudden the trumpet sounds, the rapture of the church, finish line is here. You just crossed it. Oh, I should have been running faster. <laughs> okay. I should have been found ready when the Lord returns. So uh, these are the concepts there. The, um, these verses, uh, Romans 14. And verse 19 tells us, uh, so then pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. We should be chasing after what makes for peace. If there's something that's going to reconcile two brothers, man, run after that. Chase it. Pursue it. 1 Corinthians 14.1. After we learn that uh, faith, hope, love, abide these three, the greatest of these is love, and then we're told pursue love. Pursue love. Don't persecute love. That doesn't make any sense. Pursue love. That's a good translation. Chase after it. Chase after it. And, uh, you know, that's the idea of a, of a persecution, of a pursuit. You're chasing after it with the attention of, 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 you know, you want to grab hold of it. You want to catch it. It's not just a recreational chasing like a dog chasing a car. that The dog's clueless what he would do if he actually caught the thing, you know, but he sure has fun chasing after it. No, we're going to chase after it, and we want to grab hold of it. 1 Timothy 6.11 Another positive use. Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And that's, uh, man, how many things is that? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness, six different things. And uh, all of that there is introduction to fighting the good fight of faith. 2 Timothy 2.22, cleanse yourself from these things and pursue Cleanse yourself from these things. Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You're not alone in this pursuit. You've got fellow believers. You've got brothers and sisters that will join you in this pursuit. So let's, let's get after it. Okay? Hebrews 12.4 is a pursuit. 14, I'm sorry, 12.14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Pursuit. See, and, and maybe the biggest issue is, is that takes energy, right? That takes energy, you know, it's, it's, that's a lot of work chasing after somebody, chasing after a suspect, chasing after an escaped inmate, chasing after, you know, and you just, you got to do it. The guy's running, you got to chase him down. But man, you know, you hope that uh, you're in better shape than he is and you hope that it's a shorter pursuit rather than a longer pursuit. And, uh, you know, the radio is faster than you are, so you could call in and get some help, right? Different things there. We joke about the bullet being faster than, than your feet, but that's only humor. No one in, intentionally does that as far as that goes. All right. And then here, twice in Philippians chapter 3, it, you know, we could probably translate it pursue and it would still make sense uh, as opposed to pressing on. Um, and I think with all the other positive uses we have of pursue, then it would, it would be consistent with the other New Testament uses uh, if uh, we thought of it as a pursuit. 
But pressing on is how it's rendered, and so, I don't know, either way, the concept is still there. Uh, Verse 12, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So that's, is that a, you know, a pursuit? Sure. It's like, think of the relay race. Think about where you're running and you're ready to grab that baton. And you want to, you're running so that you can grab onto it. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And the imagery here is like, you ever watch these, these runners and as they're approaching that finish line, they lean forward? You know, that, that little extra lean right there at the very end, sometimes that's the difference in the race right there, is who's, who has the better lean right there because they're so close. And these things are measured in the tenths of a second, hundredths of a second. And they've got, they've got uh, these time measurements now in cameras and computers that can track things better than was ever possible before. All right, so this is a, a very positive thing. And if there was something here I was going to show you on Wednesday, I don't remember now what it was going to be. So we'll bring this up and see. So there's your verb, dioko. There's your translation, the 45 uses. And yeah, the bulk of them, since this color wheel is proportionate, the, the, the blue color, that's, that's the majority of the wheel right there, is your persecution translations. And then your pursuit translations. Uh, there's a, a more obscure use there of run after. It's used in Luke 17. Uh, they will say to you, look there, look here. That's when many Christs will arise in the tribulation, the false Christ. And uh, Jesus is warning, don't chase after them, don't run after them. They will say to you, look there, look there, there's the Christ. Don't go away and don't run after them. Uh, there's a dioko that's used in uh, Romans 12, 13. Here's an interesting one. Are you familiar with Romans 12 when it says contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality? Well, guess what? That verb for practicing hospitality is actually dioko, pursue hospitality. Pursue hospitality, run after it. Don't run from it, run towards it. Run, uh, practice hospitality. You should be chasing after hospitality uh, occasions instead of uh, running away from them. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, we saw that in Philippians 3.6, pressing on in Philippians 3.12, pressing on towards the goal in Philippians 3.14, and then seek after. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. That's pursuit. It's like pursuing righteousness, pursuing peace, pursuing love, pursuing that which is good for one another and for all people. I'd prefer to render that as pursue. See, So uh, there you go. Remind me when we publish the Bollinger Study Bible to render that as pursue. <laughs> Put that up there with the other pursuit translations. That's where it's used in the Septuagint, mostly for raw daf. And there's a lot of chasing in the Old Testament, so we should be familiar with those. All right. There's also a lot of persecution in the Old Testament. All right. Well, we'll let that go. I think that was. I think what I wanted to show you was the First uh, Thessalonians five and the Romans twelve, practicing hospitality and seeking after that which is good. All right, those are good uses as well. Now, why? I press on, why? (laughs) I keep on racing, I keep on pursuing, why? 
There's a so that purpose clause. So that. So I've got a reason for my racing. I have a reason for my pursuit. I've got a goal. I've got a destination in mind. There's a purpose. So that I may lay hold of, and that's a compound of that first get, that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. All right. So we have a double purpose clause here, but it's the same. Because I want my purpose to be God's purpose. He laid hold of me for a reason. Now I want to lay hold of that. That's what I want to lay hold of. I want to lay hold of that reason that he had when he laid hold of me. See, that that makes it simple. That makes it simple at that point. So, if I may even lay hold of. This is the aorist active subjunctive of katalambano. So if you remember the lambano from Wednesday night, this is now an intensive. You put a kata in front of it. Kata lambano. And kata um, can intensify verbs. Kata can also have a downward motion. Sometimes, uh, you know, if you hold something and then you, or you take something or then you take something down, you hold something down. When you bring it down, uh, you are solidifying it. You are locking it in place. And that's, uh, it just becomes a stronger form of lambano. Um, number 2638 and uh, three uses of it right here. Three uses of it because it's used twice in verse 12 and it's used once in, uh, in verse 13. Uh, that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And brethren, I do not regard myself as having catalambanoed it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. And so until it's in hand, you keep reaching for it. And uh, you know it's not in hand yet because you're, you haven't been raptured yet. You're not in heaven yet. As long as you're still here, you're still being uh, perfected. You're still having the teleao verb happening to you. Every, every day, every moment of every day, the Father continues to work. And this should, be, uh, this should be interesting. Now, why then do we start with a lambano and then abandon it for kata lambano the next three times? Why then did we start with lambano and then switch for the next three uses are all kata lambano every single time, and we're, we're never again bringing back the lambano from verse 12, where he says, not that I've already taken it, or have already become perfect. See, my conclusion is, I'm not alone in this, but I think what we're doing here is Paul is, is abbreviating, he's, he's found a way to encompass both aspects into one. And so the kata lambano, I believe now, is a conflation of lambano plus teleao. It's taking hold of plus being perfected. And when you combine those concepts together, then you have the kata, the intensive laying hold of. And so uh, as we read these kata lambanos each time, we recognize that it's the totality of this whole passage. It is, it is taking and being perfected. It's the conflation of the first lambano plus the teleao that, that never gets repeated again either in, uh, in this passage. All right, so I want to lay hold of it. I want to lay hold of it in his perfecting of me. I want to lay hold of this in his perfecting of me. He is making me perfect. And as he makes me perfect and as I lay hold of it, boom, victory, right? Face to face with Jesus Christ. And that's, uh, that's what we're doing. So we have the uh, thing he wants to lay hold of. And what does he want to lay hold of? The crown, the reward, the victory, all of the above. 
Okay, It's just an understood, implied it. But then it's defined as that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Well, what is that? We'll find out when we get there, won't we? <laughs> all right. Because all we have now is the track record of, of what we've seen already, but we haven't seen nothing yet. What's coming up? All right. What's coming up? And what is the end of the course like? And when, when we reach that end of the course, then when we're looking back, what do we see? We see that all of that has been the preparation for glory to come. It's preparation for the wedding supper. It's preparation for the judgment seat. It's preparation for the millennium, for the fullness of time. Everything that we're going to do in glory is being prepared for right here, right now. And that's what we want to lay hold of. Subpoint E, that for which also I was laid hold of. Now this is the aorist passive of Catalambano. So we had an aorist active, we have an aorist passive. And I I love the aorist too. The aorist are punctiliary. The aorist are just single action punctiliary events. So Jesus Christ laid hold of me once. I don't have to get saved a second time. I can't lose it at all. It's a once and for all laying hold of, and likewise my laying hold of. Once. Once. And I'm not there yet, because you can only grab it once. You grab that perfection once when he brings you to glory. All right. That for which also I was laid hold of. Eris passive indicative of Catalambana. Same Catalambana we had of what we're going to grab hold of is the reason why he grabbed hold of us. And that's a blessing as well. Now, we've got some concepts here. All right? And some concepts that I think are beautiful. Things that we can take in a very simple way. We can show to young believers. We can show to new new Christians. uh, Folks that maybe aren't uh, as used to Bible study as, as, as we are. Uh, and just walk them through and say, look at this. Isn't this cool? What do you think about this? How do we lose sight of this? And they teach. They teach eternal security. They teach um, grace. They teach uh, God, the one doing the work. It's a marvelous thing. So why did he save you? Right? And that right there is kind of a, a, a brain flash when it goes off. You think, well, I'm because I didn't want to go to hell. <laughs> right? Uh, isn't that the, the only reason? I mean, goodness. I didn't want to go to hell, so I believed in Jesus. Okay. Well, that was your motivation for believing in Jesus, but why did he save you? You think maybe it was the same reason? Because he didn't want you to go to hell? Or do you think he had a better reason than that? That he actually had eternal positive reasons, and not going to hell was almost incidental. It was like, you know, a fringe benefit. Because he's got a positive purpose to make use of you for all eternity, and he couldn't, he could not realize that positive purpose, making use of you for all eternity, if you were sitting over there in the lake of fire as an unbeliever. All right, so rescuing you from the domain of darkness was a means to the end, but it was not the end. It was not the end. Okay, are we clear on that? It's like being in fellowship, confessing your sins, being restored to fellowship. That's not the end goal. It's the means to the end. Now that you're in fellowship, now that you're walking in the light, do something. (laughs) Bear fruit. Glorify Christ. Lay up treasure in heaven. Give the gospel to somebody. Preach a Bible class. Do something. But don't just be in fellowship doing nothing. I would put forth that the uh, idleness of being in fellowship doing nothing leads to being out of fellowship quicker than anything. 
Because if you're not doing anything, then you're, how, how long does it take to, uh, to commit a sin of omission? By not doing something, right? By not doing anything. You're going to commit a sin of omission quicker than anything, see? So um, we got a concept here, and I hope we can, we can uh, be blessed by this here this morning. When God the Father gives a born-again believer to Jesus Christ, he Lambano lays hold of that believer and never lets go. Jesus Christ takes hold and he never lets go. And why does he do it? Well, we're going to see. John chapter 6, when God the Father gives a born-again believer to Jesus Christ, he lays hold of that believer, that is he, Jesus, lays hold of that believer and never lets go. So we got some concepts here, and Jesus wrote of these, or spoke of these, and then John wrote them down. Let's go to John chapter 6, and you see what I'm talking about. (coughs) Because every believer has experienced this, but quite a few don't realize it, you know? You, you experience this when you get saved. And you believe in Jesus and you receive eternal life. But you don't know until you study it, until God brings you to this point of growth where you see it, just how amazing that is. Everything that went into saving you and everything that comes with it, the better things than these, the things that accompany salvation. And so sometimes when you're looking at these plain and simple words, then they, they become pretty simple. So John 6, uh, I guess we'll pick up with verse 35. This is the bread of life chapter, and he feeds 5,000, and they want him to do it again and again and again. In fact, feed me every day, I'll make you my king. Um, you know, he can be a real popular politician if you're giving him bread and circuses. But um, anyway, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And we recognize this is the faith mechanism that is the, that every metaphor here with respect to food and drink, every metaphor, everything that returns, that refers to coming to Christ is, uh, it is an active voice. You must do it. Uh, the, the subject of the verb does the verb. Uh, but in coming to Christ, what you're doing is you are believing, believing. Pastuo is an active verb. So you believe in Jesus Christ. And as you believe in Jesus Christ, you then accomplish the, uh, the metaphor of eating the bread of life. You accomplish the metaphor of drinking the, the water of life, of, of eating his flesh, of drinking his blood. I mean, the, the, the metaphors are, are, there's a variety of metaphors, but they all come down to our faith. Do we believe in Christ? And when we believe in Christ, from that moment on, we never thirst again. We never hunger again. You can never lose it again. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And this is an absolute, and this is the nature of what happens when the Father predestines and elects, and when the Father gives to the Son, that's a guarantee. That is an absolute guarantee. And no one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent, who sent Christ draws him. And there's, there's a, a work that the Father does, that the Holy Spirit does. These are the preparations that happen before we get saved. And yet, if we don't believe, it's not going to happen. We want to be clear on that. So all that the Father gives me will come to me. So it's a gift from the Father. Does the Son love the Father? Does the Son love the things the Father's given him? Does the Son want to keep the things the Father's given him? Especially since the Father tells him not to lose even one. Don't lose even one. 
So all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Do you know how strong that is? I will in no ways not, certainly not, cast out. In English, when we use a double negative, it reverses itself and it cancels it out and it becomes a positive statement. In Greek, uh, you can double the negative and it just makes it stronger. You can even triple the negative and quadruple the negative and it just gets stronger every single time. It's not like in English when we're going back and forth thinking, okay, that's a double so it means yes, or that's a triple so it means no again, or it's a quadruple so it means yes again. And we're constantly going, trying to figure out the, the not, not, nots when somebody uses, uses that kind of language. So uh, not to, it's not my intention to not confuse you this, this morning, not. Okay? But to show you when you have, I don't even know what I just said there, but when you, sometimes you've got to work it out that maybe I misspoke. Because the double negative cancels and becomes a positive. And that's just how language works. That's how English works. That's how we think. That's not how they thought. When they double the negative, will not, won't, won't, that becomes positive. Okay, Certainly not. I will in no ways cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's all about Jesus Christ obeying the will of God the Father. You understand, if the Arminians are true, if the Arminians are correct in their theology that a born-again believer can lose it, what they're really saying is that Jesus Christ can disobey the Father. Wow, how scary is that? Okay, Because if Jesus Christ could disobey the Father, then we wouldn't have been saved in the first place. He can't disobey the Father. He won't disobey the Father. He didn't disobey the Father when He went to the cross. Why would He disobey the Father now? He's already done the difficult. Keeping us saved is easy. All right. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, of all, everybody, I lose not even one thing, but raise it up on the last day. We have a guaranteed future resurrection. Because why? Because Jesus Christ will never obey the Father, disobey the Father. Okay? He's got a 100% success rate. He doesn't get content. You know, we get content. Eh, three out of four, that's not bad. Five out of ten, okay, I'll take it. You know? We get content. Oh, I lost one or two? Well, yeah, but I still got whatever. For Jesus, it's 100 out of 100. And if there's 90 and 9 and the one that's lost, what does he do? That's right. He's not content. I'd be content with a 90 and 9. I mean, yeah, all right. You lose one now and then, that's just cost of doing business. Not so for Jesus. Because the Father gives him everything and the Father says, don't lose even one. So, this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. You can't lose it in the meantime. You have eternal life the moment you get saved and Jesus will resurrect you. You cannot lose it in the meantime. That's a promise guarantee. And so he's got a purpose. And part of that purpose we can see is raising on the last day. Part of that purpose we can see is, is uh, being perfected and, and being placed in glory. And uh, this is a, an aspect of Jesus and his faithfulness. John chapter 10 builds on this and I think adds an extra special little element to it. A little quirk, if you will. John 10 And um, 
Of all the eternal security passages anywhere in the Bible, this is my, this is my go-to, my number one, my favorite. <coughs> it's in John 10, it's in the shepherding chapter. And uh, the good shepherd is promising these things, and my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. You know, what part of never are you struggling with? Never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. He's going to obey the Father. No one can is stronger than him. No one can thwart his sovereignty, his omnipotence. And then, even beyond that, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And this is the little twist, that little quirk, the little detail that gets added here in chapter 10, more so than in chapter 6, or not at all in chapter 6. So there's a gift the Father gives to the Son, but what we learn here in chapter 10 is when the Father hands us to the Son and the Son takes hold of us, the Father doesn't let go. They're both holding on to us now. How cool is that? They're both holding on to us now. And so the Father is handing us to to Jesus, and Jesus grabs hold of us. Who's going to snatch us out of Jesus' hand? Nobody. But then we realize, wait, the Father's still holding on. So now both are holding us. Remember, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. Okay, We are in the Father and the Son. There's so many things here. And so if no one can snatch us out of Jesus' hand in verse 28, and no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand in verse 29, doesn't that seem impressive? I mean, wow, you know, it's, uh, to me, it's already infinite omnipotence if, if one member of the Trinity is holding on to me, because Jesus is omnipotent. That's an omnipotent hand holding on to me. Who's going to snatch me out of an omnipotent hand? And as if that's not making the point loud and clear enough, how about we add a second omnipotent hand? Now there's two omnipotent hands holding on to me. So for somebody to snatch me out of that, or for me to snatch myself out of that, or for me to somehow lose that, what does that mean? It means the power required for you to lose your salvation, for even one believer to lose their salvation, the power required has to be greater than double omnipotence. Infinity times two plus, right? In order to cause even one believer to lose their salvation. That's, that's awesome. To me, that is, that is that's, that's a neat thing to, to think about. And then he says, I and the Father are one, right? So we're, we're held doubly secure and they're in agreement with what they're doing. They're not uh, doing the tug of war. <laughs> you know, if Jesus' omnipotent hand was pulling this way and the Father's omnipotent hand was pulling that way, yeah, hmm. all right. But I and the Father are one in agreement, united, intent on one purpose. So, the beautiful statement there, and of course the Jews don't like it. (laughs) They pick up stones to stone him because he made himself out to be God. He was declaring his deity here and they they called him out on it. They called him a, a blasphemer. How can a man call himself God? Well, it's a blasphemy unless he is God. Okay? He is the God-man, so it's true. A lot of doctrine in this chapter. I love it. All right.
By the way, pray for this because this is the chapter I'm using in the, the, the book I'm trying to get written. So pray for that. I've got an introduction and an opening chapter and we'll see whatever else happens on that. So um, when God the Father gives a born-again believer to Jesus Christ, he lays hold of that believer and never lets go. He also lays hold of that believer for a specific race, course, purpose. He also lays hold of the believer for a specific race, course, purpose. So he's got a purpose for this. He's not just holding on to us to have and to hold. He's not just holding us for no reason. He's not just holding us and doing nothing with us. See, some people lay hold of things and they don't want to do anything with it. They just don't want somebody else to have it. (laughs) So they hold on to something. Not sure why and don't really intend to do anything with it. But they got it. It's theirs. Not so with Jesus. He, he lays hold of us, but he's got reasons. He's got a goal. He's got a purpose. And uh, Acts 13 is one of my favorite passages on this. Ephesians 2, Hebrews 12. There's so many things we, we can center on this. And when you start to realize, wait a minute, this actually refers to me here. Wait a minute. I haven't thought about this before. Acts 13, 36. So he lays hold of us for our eternal life and our security, but there's more. He lays hold of us for a specific race, a specific course, a specific purpose. And uh, this comes in uh, a message that Paul is preaching. And Paul, uh, boy, where does it start? It starts way back in verse 16. Wow, okay. We need words of, we have words of Christ in red, we need words of Paul in purple or something where you can just glance to the page and see. Actually, you can do that with Logos software. I'll try that. All right. Um, Anyway, this message begins way back in verse 16. I don't want to read the whole thing to you, but he's um, talking about David at a certain point here. He talks about the Exodus, and he talks about Samuel, and he talks about Saul, and then he gets to David. And with David, of course, as a man after my own heart, in verse 22, who will do all my will. Then verse 23, from the descendants of this man, according to promise... God has brought to Israel a Savior. So according to His promise, a descendant of David, the seed of David, is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And um, not John the Baptist, he said, not me, but it's Jesus is the Savior. Now this is the, uh, the issue, and then of course uh, they put Him to death. So verse... Um, 26, brethren, son of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath, fulfilled uh, these by condemning him. Isn't that interesting? They didn't believe the scriptures. They didn't even understand the scriptures. But they fulfilled the scriptures when they put him on a cross. They fulfilled the scriptures when they rejected him. He's the stone that the builders rejected. And the prophet said that would happen. 
And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when he had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him. In fact, it was a 40-day ministry. Even, uh, let's see, yeah, because Pentecost is uh, 50 days after, and uh, he had a 40-day resurrection ministry. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he has raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So if he's dead and he's still dead and he's still in the grave, how is he going to get those blessings? Obviously he has to come back to life. Therefore also he says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. There's the promise. And so when it says that in Psalm 16, that your holy one will not undergo decay, is that talking about David? No, it's talking about Jesus. And that's the whole premise of this logic and this theological argument being made here in Acts 13. Because uh, it's, it's evident to anyone, you know, with half a brain, David's dead and he's still dead. His tomb is still here. His body's still in the tomb. If, uh, if Jesus' body was still there, they would have produced it. They would have desperately produced it. They would have paraded it. And, they would have, uh, and Christianity would have ended right there. New Testament Christianity, the church, would have died in infancy because producing a body proves that he didn't raise from the dead. So uh, New Testament Christianity is a lie if they could produce a body. So um, David's... Uh, David's still with us, and David's tomb is still with us, and so forth. And, um, but verse 36, David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers, and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. And so it should be clear that uh, Jesus is the fulfillment, not David, so the psalmist uh, in Psalm 16 is not talking about David, it's talking about the son of David, the, uh, the Messiah. But the, the point of this slide, though, as we lock in on verse 36, centers on David after he served the purpose of God in his generation. That's your life purpose. That's why you're here. That's why you're here. That's why in your day and age, okay, this is, this is your day and age as long as you're still here until you're gone. And then you're done, right? You've served the purpose of God in your generation, or in, instead of generation, in your lifetime, in the span of your lifetime. And so uh, that's what we're looking at. So what is, what is your life's purpose? What is the, the, the purpose of God in your lifetime, in your generation? Say, well, maybe you've got a clue. Maybe you've started it. Maybe you're already engaged in it. And you need to press on and keep being engaged in it. Or maybe you haven't found it yet. And so you think, well, I haven't started yet. You've started. You just don't know it. <laughs> I tell you, you're born again. You've started. Because step one in, in God's purpose for you is to save you. So we pass that. What else? 
does he have for you besides just being saved? Are you growing? Are you advancing to maturity? Are you being perfected? Are you bearing fruit? Are you achieving the purposes that he's designed for you to achieve? All right. And at a certain point, you realize, you know what? I got to get it in gear. For Jesus, he was 12 years old. He said, I must be about my father's business. For other believers, we, we get it at different times. And we realize, you know, man, I've already frittered away enough. I've I got to get serious with this. And I can't undo. I wish I could. Man, I'd love to go back, turn back the clock. I would love to go back in time and tell the younger me to quit being so stupid, okay? And, and to, to quit wasting all that time. We can't do that. We're all linear, forward direction. That's why Proverbs is linear, forward direction. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. If, if you're just filled day by day with regrets of what you didn't do, that's, that's counterproductive. Let it go. What you didn't do, oh well, gone. Let it go. Reach forward. Because if you keep beating yourself up over what you didn't do, you're going to keep not doing. You're adding more didn't do's to the list. Today, tomorrow, the next day, so quit adding those didn't do's and forget about all that. Keep reaching forward. That's the whole point on this. And so this is the that, this is the that which Paul was pressing on to lay hold of. And we all have something to press hold of. We all have something to press on to lay hold of. And we may not even see it until the very end. We may not be able to see it. I think Paul finally saw it when he wrote 2 Timothy. I think he finally saw it when he knew that the execution was imminent and that uh, there, was no, there was no deliverance. And so he knew that he had a crown that he that was fixing to grab onto. Okay? This is that which Paul pressed on to lay hold of. And that's the, uh, the this is that in uh, Philippians 2, uh, 3, 12 and 13. So he didn't name what it was, may not have even known what it was, but there is something. And until we're face to face with Jesus Christ, we're still reaching for it. We're still reaching for it. And who knows, you know? Um, we might have clues, like I say. I mean, I've been in ministry 25 years. I've got a clue, okay? At least up till now, what I should be doing. And I want to keep doing it. But what if he changes that course? What if that race has an unexpected left-hand turn? Ooh, didn't see that coming. Okay, well, I don't want to take that left-hand turn. I like doing what I've been doing. I want to stay here. Well, that's not your race. That's not why he laid hold of you. And that's the bigger snare. That's, that's the bigger snare. The positive things you've done. The fruit you have laid up. The things that should be in the asset column and you fail to reallocate them over to the loss column. And you're not forgetting those things either. You should be forgetting those things as well. Forget everything that lies behind. The negative things, you've, you've the wasted your time and, and sins and failures and all that, that's easy to forget. But then the victories and the glories and the fruit and the positive service and the, the different things, forget those too. You have treasure in heaven? Great, forget about it. Go grab more. Okay? Grab more because you're not done yet. And if you think you're done, and if you, the worst thing is you grow complacent, you grow content. And you think, eh, you know, I'm good with a 90 and 9. I'm good with a 80%. I'm good with a, you know, okay. 
yeah, it's not everything I could be grabbing, but you know what? It's better than the next guy. I've done a lot more than so-and-so. Okay? And I start doing the comparative thing and think, eh, isn't that enough? Haven't I done enough for you, Lord? More? You mean more? Wait a minute. Why would I do that? I've done enough. Somebody else can have a turn now. All of those are the devil whispering to you. All those ideas are just carnality saying, you know, fall short, diminish the glory of Jesus Christ. It's wicked. Absolutely wicked. So, there is something for which Jesus laid hold of me. And I don't claim to have already gotten there. I'm not content. So in verse 12, he says, I haven't grabbed it yet. And in verse 13, he says, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Coming back to the imputations, the the regarding, the considerations. So I'm just going to consider myself as having done nothing. That's a good attitude. Just assume, you know what? I don't think I've laid up any treasure in heaven yet. I don't think there's anything waiting for me yet. And the reason why I don't think there is is because I've forgotten about whatever else that I might have put up there. So I'm just considering, hey, let's just start with day zero here. Let's just start with today. And let's just start grabbing stuff. Let's start laying treasure in heaven. Let's start serving. Let's start doing something. Because this could be my last day to do this. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so there's a goal there. This... uh, Let's just tease this. We'll, uh, we'll deal with this on Wednesday, point two in the outline. Regarding rapture-ready perfection, Paul has one thing that he regards. He says, this one thing I do. And then he names two things. <laughs> All right? Typical Paul. He either does it this way or does it the other way. He either says, uh, you know, first of all, and then he never gets around to a second of all. Like, what advantage has the Jew, great in every respect, first of all, that they are uh, stewards of the oracles of God? And then you just keep reading, keep reading, and you get to the end of the chapter, and you're like, well, what's the second thing, Paul? What, you, you know, you finally get to it in, I think, chapter 9 or somewhere. <laughs> and then other times he says, one thing I want to, he told the Galatians, this one thing I want to ask of you. And then he asks them four or five questions, and goes off on these tangents same thing here not that i do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet but this one thing this one thing and then he talks about two things with an and in the middle okay and then it's common people do it all the time i see people on fox news doing this you know some political pundit says well i just want to say one thing and then they say two things they say three things they they go on and on about you know I'll tell you, there there was one big reason why, and then they list five things. So here's Paul. This one thing I know, forgetting and reaching. And maybe that is one thing. If you're doing them simultaneously, if you're doing them uh, at the same time, forgetting and reaching. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward what lies ahead, I press on. The one thing there is pressing on. Forgetting and reaching, I'm pressing on toward the goal. All right. Father, thank you for your truth. I thank you for this message. I pray that we all would learn this message. 
Father, uh, like the, the hymn that we sing, I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. And Father, I pray that we would have this as our thinking. It was Paul's thinking. We should forget what lies behind, Father, and, and teach us, Father, what it means to forget with a sanctified forgetting. We want to forget, Father, what we're told to forget. And so uh, show us how this works. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.